The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. We're going to venture on a new book of the Bible. We, those of you who've been with us know that we went through Philemon, those 25 verses in that short little book. Uh, Prior to that, we did the book of Acts and a couple of other thematic studies. And people have been asking me, what are you going to teach on or preach on next by way of a book in the Bible? And been praying, asking God, what do we need to hear? Uh, Asking God's spirit to give insight and conviction and some prompting and also have had suggestions from our members, which is appropriate. I told you about, and there were there were too many. It's like every book that was suggested to me, oh, that's my favorite book in the Bible. Every one of them, because every book in the Bible is my favorite book in the Bible. So, so that's why it's so hard to choose. So we're going to deviate from the New Testament and go to the Old Testament, and we're going to actually be in the book of Genesis. So today, we're going to begin our study in the book of Genesis. It is, yes, 50 chapters in your English Bible. Oh, Pastor Cliff, this could take 10 years. Yeah, it could. It could. I could definitely spend that much time. So strategically, actually, we're just going to look at the first three chapters in detail. That will still take a few months because there's so much there. It is so rich. And the emphasis in Genesis 1 through 3 is going to be on the beginning, how things began, how everything began, because that's really one of the main themes in Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, And that will lay a solid foundation for us. And in my prayers and thinking... That's how I, uh, the reason I landed on Genesis is because of the message that is there, Genesis 1 through 3, in light of the world in which we live today. The dominant worldview, by the way, I think, around the world is probably evolution and evolutionary theory that was systematized, not invented, but systematized and popularized by Charles Darwin in the late 1800s. Charles Darwin, the former professing Christian, who even went to seminary for a while and then left seminary. And then he popularized his view of evolution. And that was primarily in the area of biology is where evolution got its foothold. Then it began to trickle down and into the scientific and academic world. And then over the course of the last 200 years, it began to, as a worldview and theory, dominate other areas of life, thinking, and study, so that it went strictly from just biology to now evolutionary theory dominates everything from the world's point of view. Like probably most people in the world, in terms of their view of anthropology, they have an evolutionary view of anthropology or uh, sociology. It's an evolutionary view of the world. Uh, even politics, government, marriage and how it got here. Pick any institution and just about any major area of thought and view of life, it's all seen through the grid of evolution. But it didn't start out that way. So it's it's all dominating, all pervasive. This evolutionary idea that comes from Charles Darwin. And if you're talking to somebody who's not a believer, there's a good chance... But if they're not an atheist or a communist, they may very well have evolutionary theory as a foundation by which they view everything and actually consider evolution to be true science. And they would even say that evolution is a fact. I don't know if you've heard that, but that's very popular. Evolution is a fact. 
Now, it's the evolutionary theory. It's the theory of evolution. Theory of evolution. Theory, okay? You have to remind them of that. Theory means it's not a fact. It's a theory. It doesn't even deserve to be called a theory. It's actually a hypothesis. But anyway. But um, so that's what we're battling against. And I thought, wow, going through Genesis 1 through 3, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, paragraph by paragraph, as God gave it, that will do well for us to establish, lay, or even just build on the solid foundation of having a biblical worldview to be the most faithful stewards of God's truth as his witnesses in the world in which we live. So we're going to go through Genesis chapters 1 through 3. I'm not going to spend all my time or even a majority of time combating evolutionary theory and all the views out there. Don't need to do that. We're just going to stick with the biblical text. After all, Jesus said, know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's not know the 97 shortcomings and weaknesses of evolutionary theory and those will set you free. No. By the way, I couldn't remember them all. They're too complicated. Just know the truth and the truth will set you free. That really simplifies it. That's just a beautiful thing. Thank you, Jesus, for that wonderful truth. Just concentrate on knowing the truth. The Bible is God gave it. Kind of like they do. My sister is a manager at a bank and has been for years. And one of my best buddies was a manager, I think, at um, one of those well-known bank, Bank of America, for years. And they both have told me that part of the training was they have to be able to discern and detect false money as it's coming through, forgery bills. And they don't have to memorize all the different kinds of forged fake bills because there's just too many. And they're inventing new ones all the time. So they, in their training, they concentrate on just knowing the authentic dollar bill, the true one, everything about it. Hold it up, look at it in the light, hold it sideways, fold it, crinkle it, smell it, lick it. Ooh. Get to know the real thing. Know the truth, and the truth will set you free. My sister, she's not even a Christian. And she lives by that principle. So that's what we're going to do with God's Word. So that'll be refreshing. It'll encourage our hearts. Let me give you a little background on just personally first on my view of the book of Genesis. Like I said, it's a, a wonderful book. I love Genesis. It's a refreshing, delightful read for us as Christians. As I preach through Genesis, this is not going to be the first time I've taught through Genesis. I have taught through Genesis before. I've taught it in a Sunday school class, or actually a few. I've taught it in children's church, taught it in Bible study, those kind of things. But I've never actually preached through Genesis, so this will be fun and a new venture for me in terms of going into great detail from the Hebrew text as I study each week, as God originally gave it. But I was thinking that this caused me to do some reflection this week that I thought was important about my background with respect to Genesis. So this isn't going to be a flippant study. God brought Genesis into my life early on, even though I didn't grow up in a Bible-believing Christian home. I did grow up in a Catholic home. In the Catholic Church, in their Bible, they have the book of Genesis. It is in the Catholic version of the Bible. And for the most part, the book of Genesis is the same as ours in the Catholic Bible. There are some important differences here and there. But nevertheless, I remember distinctly when I was in elementary school, probably about third or fourth grade, somebody at the Catholic Church gave me a Catholic Bible for students. And I actually I put it on my bed, and, and I actually started reading it at the very beginning, Genesis 1-1. And I remember getting through the first few chapters and fascinated by it at the time. I didn't get very far. 
probably stopped, probably got stuck in Genesis 5 with all those genealogies and stuff. But I did go through the first four chapters. And I just, I remember that as clear as well. I was not a Christian. I did believe in God. And I knew there was something special about the Bible. So that's when I first remember reading Genesis 1 through 3. And then years went by, and then a Christian came into my life when I was 17, said, hey, man, you should read the Bible. So I pulled it out, dusted it off, started reading it again, started Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, senior year in high school. I was a total pagan, total rebel. But secretly, in the closet, when nobody's looking except for God, I'm reading Genesis, not telling my friends, hey, let's go drink and get drunk. Uh, no, I can't go. i got to uh, play basketball. And then, and then I ended up reading Genesis, at least the first four chapters. So that was a good, fresh reminder. So those two times stand out. But I was not a Christian when I was reading it. Nevertheless, God was doing his work through his living word. And then after my senior year, I went to college. I went to a, a Christian college in Santa Barbara, California. I was not a Christian. I went there to play basketball, but one of the requirements is I had to take a like a religious studies or Bible class every semester I was there. So the first semester, this was 1985. It's 33 years ago. The required class I had to take was called Old Testament Survey, and that's where I was introduced for the first time for a serious study and scholarly, actually, study of the book of Genesis. I will never forget it. It blew me away. I had to read the whole book of Genesis, which I had never done before. And our instructor... He was intimidating, and we're in a lecture hall of 150 students. And this guy, Dr. Diamond, he had a Ph.D. in Old Testament and Semitic and Hebrew studies from the University of Cambridge. And he even talked that way. He talked very scholarly. And here are some of the things I remember to this day from that professor from Cambridge about the book of Genesis. As he just ingrained these things about Genesis into my brain, I never forgot uh, I learned about the etiology of origin myth stories of ancient Near Eastern cults. Isn't that exciting? Etiologies. Another thing I learned from him was about the legendary primeval history that constitutes the book of Genesis. Uh, a third thing I learned from him, this is probably the most indelible, I'll never forget it. I learned about uh, the liberal German naturalist scholar Julius Wellhausen. Really? And Julius Wellhausen's Source criticism and the documentary hypothesis. Now, isn't that exciting? You're doing your devotions in Genesis and you learn about the documentary hypothesis. This is wonderful. It was so wonderful, I never forgot it. What is the documentary hypothesis? Well, J, E, D, and P. Of course. Well, well, who's that? Well, that's four different schools of Jewish, quasi-Jewish scholars over the course of history who kind of patched the book of Genesis together. Oh, I thought Moses wrote it. No, it was J, E, D, and P. This is a true story. What else did I learn? Um, oh, I learned that Genesis is poetry and lore, L-O-R-E, code for not true history. Now, I'm 19 years old. I'm not even a Christian yet. This guy's got a Ph.D. That's impressive. Paying a lot of tuition money. He must be right. All right, it's lore, whatever that means. I'm a freshman. Genesis is poetry and lore, and therefore it is not historical. But nevertheless, it's not historical. Get this, it is non-historical or ahistorical or hyper-historical. Those are technical terms. And in fact, it's sui generis. 
Did you know that? It's sui generis, and it's non-scientific. But rather, it's an accommodated redaction of religious musings of human origins meant to inspire and give meaning to unsophisticated, prehistoric, animus, primitive people groups that was co-opted and assimilated into the ever-evolving milieu and zeitgeist of those who would eventually become the Hebrew people. That is what I learned my freshman year about Genesis. I think I got a D plus in the class. But anyway, well, shortly thereafter, I became a Christian at the end of the semester. And then the scales fell off, and then I had a new view of the Bible. And then I just started reading it as a Christian. I was like, well, and I started in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It talked about Adam and Eve. And I was like, oh, okay. I just took it literally. Well, six days, and Adam and Eve were real people. Boy, I got in trouble at that school. So I had to leave. I had to find a Christian college that actually believed the Bible and Genesis as literal history. Well, I found it, uh, so God allowed me to go to another Christian college in Southern California. And there, in 1987, this is 30 years ago, I had my second college class on the book of Genesis in 1987 by Dr. Tom Halstead, chairman of the Bible department at the Master's College. And just this week, I was looking at a paper that I had to write for him called The Days of Genesis, Literal or Figurative. 30 years ago, I still have that paper. Same year, second semester, I studied the literature of Genesis from another professor, Dr. John Pilkey, who had a Ph.D. in literature from Kentucky University and learned about Genesis from a literary point of view. That was awesome. He was a Christian. It was amazing. Next year, I studied... Uh, Genesis classes is elective because I was so fascinated from one of the Bible professors, uh, Dr. Brian Taves, who is a Hebrew scholar, studying the exposition of the book of Genesis. He took it literal. Uh, Dr. Taves, do you think Adam and Eve are like real people? Psh, absolutely. It's in the Bible. McManus? Oh, okay, good. Because my previous college didn't believe that. And then was blessed when I went on to seminary at the Master Seminary and first semester, first year seminary, I took Old Testament and studied Genesis under another Hebrew scholar, Dr. James Roscup, Old Testament scholar with a Ph.D. from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Absolutely amazing. Dr. Roscup, do you believe that like Adam and Eve were like real people? Well, of course. Why would you not believe that? Boy, that was encouraging. So that's just a little background of my experience early on. Then I have had the privilege in the last eight years to be teaching the exposition of the book of Genesis at the Cornerstone Seminary up in Vallejo to pastors and pastors in training. It's a required class, part of the core curriculum, three units. We have to read the whole book of Genesis. We talk about the important uh, issues in Genesis. I share a little Hebrew with them that's significant and important in their study as they look to Genesis. We take it at face value the way God gave it. It's a literal historical book. It's absolutely refreshing. In the classes that we each year, in this required Genesis class, we interact with the greatest living scholars of the book of Genesis today on planet Earth, most of whom claim to be Christians. And we invite them in as guests, and we talk to them for hours at a time through Skype, Q&A. It's amazing. Some We have scholars that don't agree with our opinion. Most of the men we talk to, actually, are professing Christians but believe in an evolutionary kind of theory, and they force that upon Genesis. So... It's a good learning process to pick their brain and how can you be a Christian? Why do you believe this? Why do you not take it literally? If you're a Christian, you say you believe in the Bible, inspiration, and inerrancy. So that's been highly educational, very eye-opening. But not all the 
men that we interact with or that I interact with are believers. As a matter of fact, it was a year ago this week where I found a guy on YouTube who's a Hebrew scholar. Actually, he's, he's the chairman of the Hebrew department at Berkeley University and has been there for 52 years, world-renowned. He's Jewish. He's not a Christian. And over the course of the last 50 years, he translated the entire Hebrew Old Testament word for word in his own new trans, modern-day English translation. And he, and he was rigid in terms of trying to communicate what the Hebrew literally says. I have the whole thing, and he's an amazing scholar, not a Christian, amazing scholar. So I started interacting with him via email, and he responded very gracious. And then it was a year ago, me and I took my son, and we went and sat in his office at Berkeley for an hour, picking his brain. One of the greatest living Hebrew scholars in the book of Genesis today. He's not even a Christian, but he's a Jew. He's got the whole Old Testament virtually memorized. It was awesome. So I learned a lot from him by way of language and Hebrew, whatever. And I, I was able to, I didn't challenge him, but he learned something from me on Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, which surprised me. He didn't know that verse 2 began with a va disjunctive. He thought it was a consecutive va. That was surprising. I was like, whoa, really? Anyway, so we had a fun discussion. But if you don't know what that means, that's okay. I, I was just living it up. That was great. So that was Robert Alter is his name, A-L-T-E-R. He's retired now. So it was delightful. So anyway, that's just kind of some of the experiences I've had with Genesis. So I take it very seriously. Absolutely love it. And at least at seminary, by the end of the, the, the quarter, the, the men that are in the class, they are always just blessed by the wonderful study of the details of Genesis and the benefits to us. Now, so we're just going to take a straightforward, historical, literal approach of Genesis, going one through three, just how God gave it. But at the same time, for background, we do need to be aware and reminded of different views that dominate the world in terms of the truths that Genesis is trying to communicate. And that, that is, there are ideologies, worldviews, and the religions of the world all try to answer some of the most basic questions of humanity. Like, where did everything come from? How long ago did it all begin to exist? Why are we here? Where are we going? So those are some of the most important questions that universally humans ask all the time. And it's no coincidence that those very questions are answered in the book of Genesis very deliberately. And the religions of the world try to answer those questions as well with their sacred texts, with their gurus and scholars. Even non-religious people are trying to answer those questions. So here's, here's an example of some of the, like if you did a Google, the 10 smartest humans in the history of planet Earth, number one, ding, ding, ding. No, it is not Jesus, it's Aristotle. Did you know that? Yeah, well, that's what they tell us, Aristotle. Aristotle wrote a lot. He had a very specific view about creation, how long it's been around, whatever. And, and just a summary, what did Aristotle believe? He believed that the universe, get this, was eternal. It has always existed. It never had a beginning. 300 plus B.C., that's Aristotle. And a lot of people have adopted that view. The universe is eternal. Um, top 10 smartest human beings in the history of planet Earth, Stephen Hawking, number two. Just passed away this past year. Stephen Hawking. Now, if you've read any of his musings on this over the course of decades, he changed his view on this. 
the universe, the beginning of the universe. One point he did hold that it was eternal. Changed that view. By the way, Stephen Hawking, theor- theoretical physicist and cosmologist. Theoretical. In other words, he specialized in theory. What does that mean? Making stuff up. Get paid for it. That's cool. Kind of a fun job. Theoretical. What do you do? Well, I do everything theoretical. Really? You get paid for that? Yeah. Well, that's what he did. And so he's one of the smartest guys in the world. He uses big words, but he is comprehensible when you read him. I've read him recently. Here's what he had to say about This is a summary of what he had to say about creation. This was very recent in his thinking. He jettisoned or abandoned the view that the universe was eternal. And thanks to his studies in Einstein and others and Immanuel Kant, here's what he concluded before he died. That the universe actually, we know for a fact, we know, it's settled science. We know that the universe began 15 billion years ago. How comforting. Oh, really? Yeah. And he said that it began with the Big Bang. And we know, scientifically for a fact, how it's going to end. It's going to end as everything gets absorbed and swallowed up in black holes. That's a summary of his view. Smartest man in the world. Oh, third smartest man in the world. Well, of course, it's Richard Dawkins. I referred to him earlier. He's the world-famous best-selling author, atheist, retired from Oxford University. He's an evolutionary biologist, among other things. He's written books on God and how much he hates God and how, why you should hate God, too. So, And he says that evolution is a fact. It is a fact. It is a fact. It's not theory. It's not a hypothesis. It is a fact. It's settled science. It's a fact. And he believes that the universe came into existence 14 billion years ago. The earth is about 4 billion years old. Humanity, mm, roughly 250 million years evolved from uh, animals, of course. Everybody knows that. That's a fact. That's science. This is Richard Dawkins, one of the smartest people in the world. And then if you've ever seen the interview from Ben Stein, the movie star, economist, many other things, he's pretty famous. He interviewed Richard Dawkins in that movie called Expelled. And then at the very end of the interview, he said, oh, okay, so Dr. Dawkins, uh, you think the universe came into existence through the Big Bang 14 billion years ago. So before the Big Bang, what was there? He didn't want to answer the question. But finally, Ben Stein cornered him and got an answer out of him. He said, well, of course, uh, aliens came and seeded life onto this planet. And he was serious. That was his answer. You should be laughing. It was hilarious. He was dead serious. He believes that. Aliens came and seeded life into crystals on planet Earth, and that's where we all came from. And Ben Stein is like, are you kidding? Are you serious? Yeah, he was serious. But anyway, so those are some of the... Uh, wisest men in the world, we were told. Then there's the most popular ideologies and religions. I just picked Hinduism as an example. If you read Hinduism, trying to find out, okay, what does Hinduism as a religion, worldview, believe about the existence of the universe, how long it's been around, how it came into existence? Um, they, admittedly, there are many different versions of the Hindu theory explaining the origins of the earth. Here's just a few. One of them is, is that Aum, A-U-M, was the first sound of creation. That's how everything got here. That doesn't make sense to me. But anyway, number two, or uh, another one of their so-called holy texts says that creation is like the cracking of an egg. That was the answer given into how did everything get here? Creation is like the cracking of an egg. Well, that's profound. Number three, uh, another he, uh, sacred Hindu text says that 
uh, the universe was built with timber by a cosmic carpenter. Why are you laughing? That's disrespectful. Anyway, number four, another different text, different view of how everything got here is uh, all things were created from the body parts of the cosmic man, Purusha, when his body was sacrificed. That's a, wait, that doesn't make sense. Wait, how did everything get here from a guy? But the body parts of Purusha, the cosmic body parts of this guy. Well, where did he come from? Anyway, they don't answer that question. And then finally, Brahman used heaven, earth, atmosphere, the three seasons, rain, harvest, to produce the universe. So actually what's common about this and these foreign world views and ideologies about to explain how everything got here, many common views are that the God or the power or the higher whatever it is used a pre-existing element or substance to create all that is. So then you got to keep going, well, where did that pre-existing substance come from? And they don't answer that question. But the Bible does. So we're going to see the answers in Genesis very clearly. Uh, so that's the worldview. So now let's go ahead and look at the book of Genesis. Um, in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. That's our theme verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. In the beginning actually is three words in your English Bible, but it's, a, it's in Hebrew. It's just one word. And that's literally what it says in Hebrew. In the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Notice in verse 1 that it doesn't try to explain or justify God's existence. It just assumes God exists. That is the approach of the Bible. Never does the Bible try to make arguments trying to prove the existence of God to atheists and skeptics. It just declares de facto, it is. God is. He exists. He's always existed. He's existed prior to us. He's why we are here. And get this, Paul says in Romans 1, and everybody knows that. And then the book of Proverbs says, and if you say you don't know that, you are a fool, which is the Hebrew word for liar. Really? That's biblical terminology. Strong. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how it all got here. It's so beautiful, so simple. We're going to talk more about that, but just a couple of things I wanted to point out there. Uh, In the beginning. Now, Genesis does that very thing. It, It tells us how everything came into being in the beginning. It tells us the origin of all things we need to know. It tells us, it answers all the important questions of life. And the book of Genesis is so beautiful and fun because it's relevant for us today because it answers so many of these questions. It tells us how things began in the first place. Have you ever thought, hmm, when, when did marriage begin? When did this begin? When did that begin? How did that get here? Well, Genesis tells us very specifically of at least how 30 things began. You ready? Here we go. You don't need to write them down. Just listen. Genesis addresses how the universe got here which would include sun, moon, and stars, galaxies, etc. How the earth got here, how humans got here, how animals got here, including dinosaurs, how the caveman got here. Have you ever wondered how the caveman got here? Genesis deals with that. Newsflash, there is no caveman. How angels got here, how marriage began, how sin entered the earth, How the curse got here? What does that mean? Well, the Bible answers the question of, wow, there's bad things all around us. There's evil things all around us. When did that begin? Well, the answer is in the Bible, in Genesis. So Genesis answers that very important question of when the curse began or why when bad things began or, practically speaking, why is there pain in childbirth? Why does the woman have to go through such laborious toil and crying and weeping and blood and sweat and tears? When 
doing such a beautiful thing, bringing a baby into the world. It's answered very specifically in the book of Genesis. Why are there weeds? That's in Genesis. Why is there bad weather? That's in Genesis. Why is there war? That's in Genesis. So that's all under the curse. Uh, Genesis also introduces why, why, are, why do we have to wear clothes? Why do we wear clothes? And why are some of our clothes made out of animal skin? That's answered in Genesis. Why is there death? That's answered in Genesis. Very clearly, purposefully, specifically. Why is there murder? Where did cities come from? When did they begin? Why is there immorality? When did that begin? Why is there polygamy? When did music begin? God told us in Genesis. When did metallurgy begin? It's in Genesis. Where did the fossils come from? We know from Genesis. When did the rainbow begin? We know from the Bible. When did government begin, human government? How about the death penalty? How about meat eating? How long has that been going on? When did that start? What about hostile animals? Have animals always been hostile, vicious, and violent? No, Genesis tells us. When did the nations of the earth begin? How come we have so many different languages on planet Earth? When did that begin? Did everybody always speak different languages, or was there a time when everybody spoke the same language? Bible answers that question. Genesis tells us very specifically. Well, what about all the different worship all over the world and false worship? And Well, Genesis tells us why that's so. Where did idols come from? That's in Genesis. When did the nation of Israel begin? That's in Genesis. What about circumcision? When did that practice begin? What's it for? It's in Genesis. How about slavery? We saw that. It's in Genesis. And then number 30, the first messianic prophecy. Did you know Jesus is in Genesis? It's awesome. Jesus is in Genesis. And we see that beginning in the book of Genesis. So these are things that Genesis addresses, telling us when these very important things began. And those are the most important things we need to know to live life, actually. Answers all those questions. Uh, Another important thing is Genesis tells us, who God is and what he is like. Just studying Genesis, we would learn the following about God. Some, many, it's not uncommon for the largest religions in the world to have a very myopic or limited view of what God is like. Very few attributes. And actually some of his attributes are pretty humanly. They're compromised. They don't have a fully orbed view of the true one living biblical God. Genesis does. So here are some of the attributes about God that we're going to learn about in Genesis. That God is creator, that he is a plurality. God is a plurality. Well, we know from the New Testament, God is triunity. Three persons, one God. In Genesis, we learn that God is a plurality. Which from the New Testament, we know that means he's triune. So is the Trinity in Genesis? No, but there's a plurality of God revealed clearly in Genesis. That he's a plurality. And then the New Testament tells us this plurality is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because the Father, God, he's in Genesis. The Spirit, he's in Genesis. Chapter 1, verse 2, from the very beginning. Jesus, the Messiah, Genesis 3.15. Newsflash, the, the Trinity is actually in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Elohim. You Hebrew scholars out there know that the I am ending at the end of Elohim means that that word is plural that's why sometimes elohim in your english bible literally is translated as gods g-o-d-s it is the exact same word but based on the context we translate it with the capital g singular god because it's specifically referring to the one creator who from the new testament we know is 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Plurality in God. We know that God is holy, that he is the judge, that he is personal and relational. We learned that in Genesis as he walked in the garden with Adam. He talks to Abraham, literally. He's loving. He is wrathful. That's a perfect balance. Unlike other false gods. He is completely sovereign and totally in charge. He is patient. He is faithful. He's the covenant-keeping God. That's what his name Yahweh means. That's his personal name, Yahweh. The faithful God, the covenant-keeping God, the God who keeps his promises all the time perfectly. Yahweh, he's introduced with that personal name in Genesis chapter 2. Yahweh Elohim, he is faithful. He is transcendent. This was unique in Moses' day. Moses wrote Genesis in 1400 B.C. And when Moses is writing this, book of Genesis. I don't know how he did it, either on a scroll that he got from Egypt or whatever, and like animal skin or some papyrus leaves dried out, or maybe he had a big old chisel and a big old hammer and a big old marble stone. Take about an hour. Okay, that's the first word. Next down. He had a lot of time. He lived to be 120. And so Moses is writing this, and Moses is surrounded by various Views of the pagan gods all around him, especially the Egypt. Egypt had all kinds of false gods, many gods, a pantheon of gods. Everything was a god. The sun was a god. Animals were gods. The pharaoh was god. And Moses was raised with that worldview and ideology in Egypt in the palace. That's what they tried to indoctrinate it with him. And then God visits him at the burning bush and says, actually, my name is Yahweh Elohim. The personal God, the covenant-keeping God, the unique God, the only God, the creator God, God the judge. That's who I am, Moses. I'm distinct from all other gods. All gods are false gods except me. was the revelation God gave Moses. And Moses became a believer. And so when he's writing Genesis, I believe it's very clear that Moses is making a distinction between the one true God who has given this supernatural, divine, special revelation as a conduit to Moses... And as he writes it out, he contrasts the true God from all the surrounding false gods. And every the stroke of his pen or whatever it was is a, a confrontation, an expose, an affront to all the false ideologies that dominated in his day. Just as the Bible is an affront in our day and age where people laugh at us and mock us when we say we believe Genesis is real history, it is True to true science. It is actual fact. And people laugh at us. They mock us. We're uneducated. We're idiots. So God is transcendent. And the point there is that God is separate from his creation. That's what all those ideologies believed. God is wholly, completely separate from his creation. God didn't take part of creation and then create everything out of a piece of creation. In the beginning, nothing existed save God alone for all eternity, eternity past, which blows some brain cells, I know. And then this eternally existent, all-powerful God decided to create the world, and he did. And he created the world, and it was completely separate from God, and it remains separate from him. He continues to be transcendent and totally separate from his creation. He is not a part of creation. This totally undermines pantheism, that gods and deities are in things in creation or panentheism bible doesn't teach that god is totally separate separated from all of creation god is transcendent he is here his creation is down here and by the way in eternity future in heaven 
in the age to come, God will continue to be transcendent from his creation. We don't become God. We continue to remain separated totally from God. We don't become a part of God when we get to heaven either. We continually for eternity bow the knee to almighty transcendent creator God. Totally separated at the same. So that's transcendence of God. And in Genesis, we also learn that God is imminent. What does that mean? That's kind of a balance or the opposite of transcendent. Yeah, he is totally separate from creation, but he is intimately involved in his creation. That's imminence. He is readily available. He's immediately accessible. How far is the eternal God away from any human soul? Get this, a prayer away. You can't get any closer than that. That is imminence. A prayer away. doesn't matter where you are on planet Earth, where you're at. You cry out to God. He immediately hears you if you are sincere. That is imminence. And he's also the continual sustainer of his creation. He loves his creation. He's involved in his creation. And he continues to sustain and provide for his creation. And not just for believers, not just Christians. Jesus even said that God rains down blessings on the good and the evil. Even when the evil don't recognize it, even when the evil raise their fist to their creator, he will still rain down good and blessing upon them. It's the wonderful, imminent creator. And God is the sustainer and God is gracious. We're going to learn all of that just in Genesis 1 through 3. It's amazing. Absolutely profound. I don't even know how we're going to pull it off. Well, let me give you some official notes on a survey overview of the whole book of Genesis, not just Genesis 1 through 3. I got seven points. Are you ready? Here we go. Just a quick overview of the book of Genesis just so you can have a context and be oriented when we begin our verse-by-verse study starting next week. Point number one, and that's the title of Genesis. We call it in English Genesis. We get that from, that's a Greek word. It came from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Genesis. It means origins, which makes sense because Genesis tells us the origin of everything. I already went over that. The original Hebrew word, is Bereshith, with a B, Bereshith. And that's actually the first word in your Hebrew Bible in Genesis 1.1, Bereshith. And that is related to, I mean, it literally means in the beginning. So that's the title of the book. That's where it came from. Uh, number two is the composition of the book of Genesis. Originally, uh, this is very important. Originally, Genesis was not a separate book from the other four books in our Pentateuch. Very important to understand that. So when Moses wrote Genesis, he didn't just write Genesis. He wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he didn't even even call them those names. But from Moses' point of view, it was one book. And it was called The Law of Moses. So it is totally fabricated, false, unduly synthetic to separate Genesis from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. One author Same time period, deliberate purpose, it all belongs together. The Jews understood this. And this isn't just true of the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Old Testament. This is true of many books in the Old Testament. For example, Ezra and Nehemiah, originally probably one book. First and second Samuel, originally one book. First and second Chronicles, one book. First and second Kings, one book. The way it was, whoever the author was. So... It's fabricated to separate Genesis from the other four books. And uh, other names that the first five books go by, we know those. It's the law, the law of Moses. Torah is the Hebrew word. That means law. 
Pentateuch, that comes from a Greek influence. Pente means five, five books. So that's the law. So that's what we're talking about. Genesis, put it in this context. When Moses wrote this, there were no chapter divisions. He didn't start chapter one. (coughs) And there were no verse divisions either. Verse two. (coughs) Nope. Just Hebrew script. There were at times spaces to distinguish thought or breaks or even paragraphs. Big spaces. We know that from manuscripts. Originally written in Hebrew or Aramaic script. By the way, in originally, there were no vowel pointings. There were no vowels. They're pretty much all consonants, the Hebrew language. We put little vowel pointings there to help us English people try to pronounce their consonantal words, which is very difficult. Uh, the oldest Genesis manuscript that we own today, get this, is about 250 B.C. Whoa! You mean the oldest Genesis manuscript in existence today that is over in Jerusalem and Israel is over 2,000 years old? Yeah, it is amazing i've seen it they're called the dead sea scrolls discovered in 1946 and over the next four or five years almost the entire old testament found in these caves in the qumran community it was called and they ended up getting hundreds and hundreds of these manuscripts and even secular archaeologists had to admit whoa these are like really old like uh 250 bc and genesis portions of it and some of it totally intact and you can see it if you go to Jerusalem today. Or many times the Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit is allowed to be, go around the world as different institutions are stewards of it. It's a very rare privilege that they would leave Jerusalem. But Brigham Young U- University did that in the 1990s. Brigham Young University was allowed to have the Dead Sea Scrolls for a two-week exhibit. Very rare privilege. Lo and behold, I actually lived in Utah at the time. Lo and behold, I happened to know the, the chairman of the Bible department of Brigham Young University at the time. And lo and behold, it just so happens that he was in charge of the Dead Sea Scroll exhibit. He said, Cliff, would you like to come see the Dead Sea Scrolls? Uh, let me think about it and pray. But I'll get back. To, no, is absolutely. So I had the privilege to go and see the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is absolutely amazing. Then over the Isaiah Scroll that's as long as from that wall to that wall. Over 2,000 years old, including the book of Genesis. So I, that's just amazing that we have that, those manuscripts. Okay, number three, the author was Moses, 1440 B.C. Write down a couple of verse references. Uh, we won't go there. John 5, 46. By the way, if you believe that Moses wrote Genesis, then you are in keeping with the first 1,800 years of church history. 3,000 years of Jewish scholarship in history. You agree with the view of Jesus. That's pretty good company. You're in company with the 12 apostles. You're in company with the greatest Jewish scholar there was, the apostle Paul. And you are totally out of step with pretty much the majority of planet Earth today, even in the evangelical church. You told people that you believe uh, that Moses wrote Genesis, they laugh in your face. That's not scholarly. That's not academic. That's not the most recent uh, understood position of scholarship in academia. Well, it's true. So John 5, 46, Jesus said, Moses wrote of me, John 5, 46. Well, that's not referring to Genesis. Yeah, it is. Moses wrote of me, John 5, 46, because Jesus viewed 
the law of Moses, Moses, the Torah, as one book. Genesis to Deuteronomy. The law and the prophets, Jesus would say. Here's your Old Testament, the law and the prophets, or the law of the prophets and the writings. That was his division. Okay, let me get a more, little more specific. John 7, 22, get this, Jesus said, Moses, he's talking to the Jews, Moses gave you circumcision. Whoa, John 7, 22? What is Jesus? He's referring to Genesis 17. Genesis 17, when nine times, over nine times, circumcision is mentioned there. Moses wasn't even alive yet. But Jesus was saying and affirmed, Moses wrote Genesis 17. Moses gave you circumcision via the book of Genesis. And then there's even an explanatory note by John the Apostle explaining, trying to say, well, okay, reader, understand. Jesus didn't mean that Moses was alive at this time. Moses was the one that put this together, and that's how we got it, which is awesome. John 7, 22 and 23. And then Luke 24, verse 25 and 26. Basically, Jesus affirms that uh, Moses wrote Genesis. Okay, what is the genre of Genesis? We'll go through this in more detail, but I'll just say it's historical narrative. In other words, it is not poetry. It's not lore. It's not legend. It's not, it's not myth. It's not haiku. It's historical narrative. And uh, Genesis is referred to or alluded to 165 times by the New Testament. Writers, they believed it was historical narrative. Uh, number five, time span covered in the whole book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 50. Uh, the time span covered 2,369 years. 2,369 years, that's number five. Number five, time span of Genesis, 2,369 years. Number six, outline of the book, chapters 1 through 11. The world, chapters 12 through 50, Israel. Pretty simple, huh? That's just the content. Or you could say primeval history versus patriarchal history, same thing. Or Genesis 1 through 11 focuses on events, creation, fall, flood, Babel. And then 12 through 50 focuses on people. Abram, Isaac, Joseph, Dave, uh, Joseph, uh, sorry. A Abram, Isaac, Joseph, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, sorry, and Joseph. Anyway, number seven, purpose. This is the last one. What is the purpose of Genesis? There are many purposes. I've alluded to many already. I'd say the overarching, it's a gift from God, actually. He preserved it for his people. Actually, he preserved it for the world. And especially his people. Oh, by the way, under author, it was Moses and the Holy Spirit. Forgot to say that. 2 Timothy 3.16. But the purpose of Genesis, a gift from God to his people, to the world, that we might be edified, that we might be blessed, that we might know him more, that we might know him better. And also, it answers the biggest questions in life, which I've already referred to earlier. How did we get here why are we here? What is our purpose? What is our purpose? Did you know that's stated in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, or chapter 1? Why, what is our purpose here on earth? We'll talk more about that. Who is God? Why is there evil in the world? Genesis answers the conundrum of the purpose or the problem of evil very clearly. And then Genesis also answers the question, what about the future? And let me close with this. Everybody turn to Genesis 3.15. What about the future? How does it all end? Genesis 15 as well, or 12 preaches the gospel. But Genesis 3, 15, many would say this is the first messianic prophecy. And as a result, it's the first seed, prophetic seed of good news to a sinful, fallen, hopeless, purposeful, purposeless world. When God said to Satan in verse 15, I'm going to put enmity or hatred between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve. 
That's bad news. And I'm going to put enmity and hatred between you, your seed, your descendants, and her seed. That's bad news. But here's the good news. One of the descendants of Eve shall be a man. He, that's the Messiah, shall bruise you on the head. He's going to, one is going to come from Eve who's going to crush your head, Satan. He's going to kill you. That's why Jesus came into the world, to crush the head of Satan, who's the, who, who wields death as his greatest weapon. But this descendant of Eve, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall strike him or bruise him on the heel. When this Messiah comes to conquer you, Satan, he will crush your head. And yeah, you'll get a blow in. You'll hurt him temporarily. You'll motivate people. You'll deceive them. You'll tempt them. You'll prompt them into rejecting the blessed Jesus, the only Savior, the wonderful Messiah. They'll crucify him. They'll kill him. They'll execute him publicly even though he is perfect and sinless and the savior of the world. Then he'll be buried, but then he's going to rise again from the dead. He's going to ascend into heaven, and that's where Jesus reigns today as king of kings and lord of lords in fulfillment of scripture and the first promise definitively given in Genesis 3.15, 6,000 years ago. Absolutely awesome. So we're not just going to do a shallow, superficial study of the book of Genesis. We're also going to find Jesus and the gospel in Genesis. With that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this day. And again, another blessed day of worship to be with the saints and the wonderful privilege we always have to look to your word. We pray that as we go through Genesis 1 through 3, that you would be our teacher through the Holy Spirit for believers, the Holy Spirit who lives in us. For unbelievers, you promised that the Holy Spirit would still be their teacher. And we thank you for the food, that, uh, for the soul that Genesis will provide, the conviction, the strength. And we also pray new life that those who don't know you might come to know you. We thank you. We give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.